0: The Lord redeems the soul of His servants, and none of those who trust in Him shall be condemned. Therefore He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, reserved um, to be ready to be revealed in the last time. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's bow our heads together and ask God's guidance and direction on what we study today. Our Father, we are so thankful for your Word that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, that your Word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So, Father, as we sit and study your Word, God the Holy Spirit is taking it and using it to challenge us and confront us, in some cases reprove us, in our lives, so that we might conform our lives to you and to the Scriptures, that we might live for you, think the way you would have us to think, that our conversation would be that which conforms to the truth of your word, and that we might glorify you with the way in which we live our lives. So, Father, to that end, we pray that you would guide and direct us in our study this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning, we're going to look at an aspect of grace orientation that provides for others. So as we come together now, we're going to focus on this passage, and I need to have a little review for us as we go through here. The main idea that governs the last half, the last part of, of uh, Ephesians, is stated in Ephesians 4.1 where Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we have studied this, this metaphor of walking because this is a metaphor that focuses on uh, summarizing how we conduct our lives, how we live our lives in application of God's word. And so walk is, if we think about it, is a step-by-step procedure. We put one foot in front of another, and over a course of time, you could even, if you were of a mind to, walk from one uh, coast in this country all the way to the other coast. And when you start off, you think, there's so much in front of me. I have so much to do. But if you're just consistent and do it one one morning, one afternoon, one day at a time, then eventually you do that. And there have been many people who have done that o- over the years. The spiritual life is a lot like that. We take it one step at a time, and we look at what Scripture uh, tells us God expects of us, And we say, how in the world can that ever be true in my life? And yet if we just take the time to take it step by step, day by day, week by week, uh, be consistent in reading the Scripture, memorizing the Scripture, internalizing the Scripture, consistent in coming to a Bible class and listening to what the Word of God says, then over a period of years, we will look back and be amazed at how God has worked in our lives and what we have learned. And it's not always easy. There are too many people and too many churches who uh, basically just teach at a very basic level, and you can never rise above the level of your instruction. So if all you ever got in life was the kind of instruction you received in preschool or kindergarten, then you wouldn't advance very far. And the same thing is true in the Word of God. And we live in a in a world where in the local church we are a lot like a one room schoolhouse. Some of you are fairly recent believers, either chronologically or in terms of your spiritual growth. Others of you are much more advanced because you have been in good Bible teaching churches and you've sat under teachers and pastors that have taught you well for decades, and so your understanding is much more profound, but we all need to be reminded of all of the teaching of the Scripture all the time because the sin nature just wants to sort of uh, take it over, sort of uh, assimilate whatever we've learned and try to rationalize it and redefine it in terms of its own uh, selfish, arrogant um, uh, agenda. And so it's important for us to learn that we are to consistently carry out this spiritual life by walking. And so the application, part of the application part of Ephesians goes from Ephesians 4.1 down through 6.9. Then it really gets into application because 6.10 down to the end of the chapter focuses on our spiritual warfare, which is definitely application. But, in this chapter it 's the focus, and in this section, the focus is on this worthy walk, and it is described then in verse two as being characterized by humility and gentleness it 's a, a little difficult when you look at it in the uh, in the New King James because it says lowliness, but the idea there is humility, something we 're studying. In Ephesians, uh, I'm, excuse me, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11 on Thursday night as exhibited by the Lord Jesus Christ. And gentleness, this is part of what should characterize our lives. These two things should characterize our relationships with people we don't know such as the people that we deal with on a day-to-day basis in various uh, service industries, Uh, our own family. seems like sometimes our application is worse with our family than it is uh, with people we don't know. And it should always be characterized by humility and gentleness and with uh, patience, long-suffering, uh, bearing with one another or putting up with one another by means of love. Now, this love is not the kind of love that is exhibited uh, in our culture. That is a very self-centered love based on emotion. Uh, It's very superficial and sentimental, but it is not the kind of love that should characterize a believer's life. We've studied this many times, and this is a fruit of the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is the only one who can produce this in our lives as a result of our uh, walking by the Spirit, which is part of walking worthy by the calling with which we've been called. So we see the framework for this is to walk by means of love, but when we get down to Ephesians five four, we're to walk in walk in love. And so it comes right out and states it that way. So love is critical for understanding how we are to live. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is when we break down the attributes of God, as you're familiar with, in the ten attributes, where we talk about the fact that God is sovereign and righteous and just and love. And God is eternal. And then we talk about his omni-characteristics, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. He never changes. He's immutable. And he is absolute truth. His thinking is the uh, rule of reality. So that's that's the primary attributes, you might say. Often they are blended together in many different ways. And yesterday I got an email from a friend who said, why don't we put mercy and grace into the essence box? And the reason is, is because mercy and grace are the applications, the outworking of the primary attribute uh, of God's love. And so here in Ephesians 4.2, and then we get down to 5.4, we see this whole section's wrapped around the significance of love, and we have to understand this with reference to what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8 are sometimes referred to as the love chapter. Uh, love is not defined as much as it is described and so i just thought it would be a nice little exercise to look at those the key uh 4 verses 13 4 through 7 and to overlay those on what paul is saying in Ephesians 4 Col- uh 1st corinthians thir- uh, 13 4 says lo- uh, excuse me love suffers long love suffers long this is the word uh, makrothymia and so this is what we see as, as a critical part of, of, uh, love. And love is kind. So it's patient and kind. And this is reflected in Ephesians 4.32. And that love is long suffering. Love is, is patient. And love is, uh, love is kind. So we ought to ask ourselves, in our relationships with the people who are close to us and the people whom we don't know so well, are we exhibiting patience and are we exhibiting kindness no matter what they may do? See, this isn't be kind to them and nice to them when they do things the way we want them to do things. This is being kind and gentle with them when they are doing things that, that we are just, we really want to get very angry and upset about. But we are to deal with them in uh, uh, patience and in kindness. Then next, uh, Paul says, love does not envy. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Now, those three Basically, those three attributes, but especially parading itself, this is just pure self-absorption and a desire for self-recognition. And not puffed up is an, uh, a, an idiom for arrogance. And in contrast to that, in Ephesians 4.2, we read that what characterizes the worthy walk is humility and gentleness, this is the same idea that we have here in 1 Corinthians 13.4, and just the opposite of parading itself or being puffed up. And then uh, we read that it is, uh, in, down in Ephesians 4.15 and 16, that part of this worthy walk is focusing on building up one another. That means edifying one another encouraging one another and this is the role that we should have uh, in a Christian marriage that husband and wife are encouraging one another they are building each other up and they are not uh just out for what they can get out of the relationship they are to uh, serve one another in love so we are to be involved in building up one another so we have to think through what this what this means in our spiritual life one of the sad things i think that came out of the the holiness uh, movement of the late 19th century as exhibited in part of what is in our, you know, in our uh, uh, backstream is this idea that if I just let go and let God, and if you read what some people hear that and they think one thing. They th- they they change it from what it means. It, it's a mystical concept. If they just let go and let God, that somehow God's just automatically going to cause you to, to want the right things and do the right things. But that's not how this Christian life works. We walk by means of the Spirit. The Spirit is going to bring to our mind how we ought to apply the Word, but then we have to make the decisions to apply the Word. That means that when we feel those, we've studied the verse coming up that be, um, to, about being angry and not sinning. When we feel certain things welling up inside of us, anger, resentment, bitterness, we have to exercise our volition and choose not to carry through with that and to deal with it. We, it, God the Holy Spirit isn't going to zap you, uh, and make, and make the decisions for you. We all have to make those decisions each time. We look at verse 5, love is also characterized as not behaving rudely. That has the idea of, of actions and attitudes and saying things that are out of anger or wrath, uh, can be sins of the tongue. Uh, the, uh, Ephesians 4.31 mentions slander with malice. And it goes on to say that love does not seek its own and is not provoked. That means it's not going to easily react negatively to something somebody says or does. Uh, it's demonstrating what is best for them. Then then the text says it thinks no evil. This is the word, the form of the word is kakos with an OS indicating it is a noun, but an adjective It's the same root, K-A-K, that ends with I-A, and that's the word we have in Ephesians 4.31. It relates to evil, the application of evil, malice, anything that is intended to hurt or harm people. So love does not do that. Love does not say things that are hurtful and harmful to others. And then in verse 6 we read, it does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't rejoice in sin. And Ephesians 4.26 says we're not to sin, but we are to rejoice in the truth. And so that shows that that what is being dealt with in Ephesians four in walking worthy is is merely an expansion and development of what Paul has summarized more briefly about love in first corinthians thirteen four through seven and then bears all things it 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 puts up with all things that 's what we have in Ephesians. Uh, For two, that we are to bear with one another, put up with one another in love. So it puts up with all things and believes all things. It's optimistic about the object object of love. It's not gullible, but uh, 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 but it is optimistic, hopes all things, and endures all things. So when we look at all these things that are being said as we get into this. Uh, next section where we have these 27 different commands. They often overlap with one another, but they are all developing this idea of what it looks like to really live our life based on love, love for one another as we walk by God the Holy Spirit and God the Holy Spirit uh, teaches us. It also emphasizes a lot about how we speak. Now, because I think of bad translations, we're often sort of influenced to think that what is being said goes in one direction. When that's, as we'll see when we get there next time, it, that's not what is being said. Uh, it, but it's important to understand the framework in Ephesians 4:15 uh, as a lead up to this. Paul says, but speaking the truth in love. So whenever we read these various translations that talk about, uh, what should characterize our speech, it has to be under the framework of that which conforms to the word of God. It's, it's not just talking about, uh, whether or not you say something off color or you, um, say something that some people may conclude is inappropriate. The issue is, are you speaking things that are in conformity to the word of God? It has to do with content being according to the truth of God's word. And our attitude, uh, our tone of voice also is part of it. We've all had those experiences where we have said the right thing, but we've said it in a rather cutting or malicious tone, which sort of overrides whatever it is that we have said. Now, no, nobody here probably ever did that. That's just my problem. Ephesians 4.16, uh, Paul goes on to say, "...from whom the whole body," that is, from Christ, who is the head of the body... From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. See, that's talking about every believer. Every joint is every believer is supplying something. All of those one another passages in scripture that talk about we're to be admonishing one another, encouraging one another, loving one another, praying for one another. All of those passages have to do with how the joint supplies to the body, ministers to to the body according to a standard that is the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth. This is part of the application of God's word causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. It's the application of God's word that causes this edification of itself in love. So we look at, this section, as we did last time by way of review. Ephesians 4.1 says we're to walk worthy of the calling. Ephesians 4.17, he contrasts that to it's not like the way the uh, Gentiles think or act or talk. There is supposed to be a difference, a distinction in the way in which um, we live our lives. Now, this is important because there are some groups, and I ran into this, uh, uh, as a, as a young man, the very first church I candidated at. And it was over across the border east of us and back in a rural area and where nearly everybody that was there was Roman Catholic. And so everybody in the church came out of Roman Catholicism. And, uh, when we got into a discussion, the second, first question they asked me was what my philosophy of ministry was. The second question was, would I, smoke, would I preach against smoking, drinking, and dancing? That conversation took two hours. We never got to any further questions. And their whole approach to the Christian life was whatever the Catholics thought they could get away with was what they could not do, which is just pure legalism. It's pure superficiality. It's letting somebody you disagree with define how you're going to live your life. And so we went through lots of different conversations uh, that way, and uh, that's not what uh, this means, like the rest of the Gentiles, because the way they think uh, may not may be very uh, morally upright. You can I can name you two or three different cults, like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are very legalistic. And yet, that doesn't mean that they're having that that they're right or they're biblical or they're in conformity to what the Word of God says. So we're not to live our lives according to way they think. Everything proceeds out of our thoughts. Proverbs says, "A man thinketh in his heart, so is he." So we can't. We have to recognize that it starts with a thought life, the way in which people think about life, and then the way they act in conformity to that. And then we have seen in, um, verses 22 to 30, to 24 rather, that we put off the old man, that is our identity in, in Adam, and we put on the new man, our new identity in Christ that was created by God. That's the body of Christ. So this is a corporate idea here. And so then from that section, we go on to learn, uh, details about how We walk or we live our lives as members of the new man, uh, those who are in Christ, this new entity, the body of Christ, has a uh, standard of thought, standard of life, standard of conversation. So we came to verse 25, therefore, having already put off the lie, this is a corrected translation, that is, everything related to the uh, position in Adam, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. This this verse is really the topical sentence, the main idea that's going to govern the rest of this chapter, and I think maybe as far down as uh, chapter 5, uh, chapter five verse verse um, would go down to about verse five somewhere in there uh, it 's all talking about what what this conformity to the truth to uh, talking speaking according to the truth really is. so this section from four twenty five to five twenty one has these twenty seven different imperatives. That doesn't mean it's legalistic, it's just describing this is how you should live. If your parents were teaching you as a child, no, 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 we don't do it that way, we do it this way. If you're a member of this family, you don't do it like that, you don't say this, you don't say that, you do this way. So they're teaching you a standard standard of living, and we summarize this in terms of these uh, ten spiritual skills. And that when we are walking by the Spirit, those spiritual skills enable us to stay in right relationship with the God, with God, which is depicted by the soul fortress. And we looked at all of these different uh, spiritual skills, and this section really focuses on grace orientation, as I pointed out, uh, last time. So we are to be speaking the truth with his neighbor. This is part of grace orientation. Have you ever thought that? That when you're not telling somebody the truth, you're letting them get away with a lie, that's not very loving. That's not very gracious. Now, that doesn't mean that in each and every situation where you hear somebody say something wrong, that it's your time to correct them. There's a right time and a right place. And you have to uh, know when that is and come to understand that. And we all learn that as we get older. Sometimes it's just not the time or the place to deal with something, even though what, what is being said is, is is totally fallacious. But for us as believers, we are to speak with one another according to the truth as we have conversations because we are members of one another. So all of that helps us to set the context for what we're going to get into uh, this morning when we get down to verse uh, 28. So Ephesians 4.15, under the context, number one, Ephesians 4.15 gives a, us a command to speak the truth in love. This Everything in this chapter is wrapped around the application of love to one another, and In Ephesians 4.15, notice it's speaking the truth by means of love. Ephesians 4.17 then expands on that, commanding us to speak truth with our neighbor, who's part of the one another. So this is a neighbor who is a believer in Jesus Christ and part of the body of Christ. Therefore, having put off the lie, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So this is an application of love. Third, the command of verse 28 is to be able to give help to those in need. It is a command to uh, not steal anymore, but the purpose is so that you can work hard and you can structure your budget so that now you have money to help others. It's an application of grace, which is an application of love. So as we look at this chapter, or excuse me, as we look at this verse, what we see in in verse 28 in the New King James is, "...let him who stole steal no longer." Well, that opening phrase, let him who stole, really reflects just two words in the Greek. It's the definite article, or the article rather, and the noun uh, for uh, kleptos, which is the word for a thief. So this should just be, uh, though it's a participle, because it has the article in front of it, it just it's just being used as a noun. So it should just simply be translated as uh, the thief. Let the thief steal no longer. And the verb is the verb form of klepto, which indicates um, uh, the idea of stealing. So the thief is a is really a participle based on that verb. I misspoke a minute ago saying it was a noun. It's the verb, but it's a participle form indicating it's a noun. So let the thief steal no more. It's a strong statement that the thief is not to steal. And he's to stop it, not wait, not go through a 10-step program, but to stop it. Why? Then he says, but instead, he should labor. He is to work. He is to uh, work in order to make money and do it in such a way that he is then able to have something to give those who have a need. Now, one of the corollaries to this verse, which teaches that we should be working and saving some money, setting it aside to help others, is the same thing is true of giving. We live in a culture that is built on debt. And there are a lot of Christians that carry a tremendous amount of debt, which limits them. Well, I'd help them out, but, you know, I've got, I'm maxed out three credit cards. I've got to pay that off. And I've got this bill and that bill, and I've got to, uh, I leased a car that I really shouldn't have spent that kind of money on. I've got that obligation, so I can't give. And I remember teaching on this uh, a number of years ago, and at the time there was a man in my church, a young guy at the time, and years later he told me, he said, you taught that, and that just was a blinding flash of the obvious, and I realized how Little I was able to give to the church or just to missions because I had just gotten into all of this debt. So he made a plan, and he got out of debt. I don't know how long it took him, but he got out of debt. And, and for, since that time, he has been able to be extremely generous in his support of missions and missionaries in the church Because he organized how he handled his money. And so this is the same thing, uh, same kind of thing, that the thief, somebody who is, uh, living off of what other people have learned is, have earned is to stop that. And instead he is to earn money so that he can support those who have a legitimate need. Now what we see here is something that is very important because this brings into play the idea of responsible labor that is part of the first divine institution. So I want to take a little time that we have left to talk about this. It relates, if you've been paying attention to uh, what we've been doing on Tuesday night in the interlocked series it expands a little bit on what we briefly covered the last couple of sessions on the first divine institution. Now, I've used different phrases and heard other phrases to describe the first divine institution, and the one that I'm sort of settled on now and I think is good, it, because two things are really present in the first divine institution. One is responsibility. It establishes the reality of individual responsibility before God. And the second is choice. We have many legitimate choices in our lives, whether or not to trust Christ as Savior is the most important. Others might be, what, what we're going to do now that we are Christians? How are we going to live our Christian life? What are we going to do? Are we going to apply Scripture in this or that situation? Or are we going to do it the way that comes uh, comes naturally? And so there are a lot of implications that come out of this first divine institution of responsible choice, but one of them has to do with responsible labor, And when you hear the word labor, if you've never heard anybody teach on this, a lot of people get the idea that that man really didn't have to work until after the fall. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that God gave man numerous responsibilities, including labor, prior to the fall. But because of the fall the carrying out of those responsibilities became toilsome, became laborious, became uh, uh, there's resistance now from the fallen world to what we are trying to do in bringing it into submission. And so that idea of toil and laboriousness and a difficulty uh, comes because of the fall, but that's not how it was initially. So let's look at a couple of these things that the scripture says first of all we have to recognize that god uh describes his creation of the human race in genesis 1:25 uh or 26 to 28 rather uh as god creating man intentionally as and being created in his image and likeness, that we are to reflect God. That's what an image does. It's a reflection of something. We are to, to reflect God, and that they were created to rule over God's creation, to rule over the planet. So every human being is made in for this same purpose. So God created not only man according to his physical nature, male and female physically, but also created us as social beings in his image and likeness, and so that we could have relationships, but those social relationships were based on certain absolutes that God built into our very nature. Uh, just, this is how man, remember, we're just dealing with unfallen man prior to Genesis 3. That God designed them to interact with one another according to certain standards. And so that's what these first three divine institutions are, is so that, that they are the way God structured humanity and he built our nature this way so that to optimize who we are as human beings we are to conform to these divine institutions they are the established by god who is our creator he designed us to function best this way so he created the divine institutions that's why they're divine not man man didn't come up with the idea of responsibility god did Man didn't come up with marriage for I mean man didn't come up with marriage as between one man and one woman God did it wasn't some cultural convention that man just thought well I think it works better this way God said I designed it this way so this is the only way you are to do it and we have to remember that violating God's divine institutions is as self-destructive as violating his physical laws. You jump off of a very tall building and you're going to kill yourself. If you violate these, if a society violates these, it will destroy itself. So we have to understand that this is not something that's optional. So in these first three divine institutions, the the next two are built on the foundation of responsible choice. And then that leads to marriage. So marriage doesn't work well unless the two people have, have take personal responsibility and accountability for the decisions that they make. But that's just generally. So what we're looking at is in relation to this one corollary to the first divine institution, and that is uh, responsible labor. This is part of it. We're given responsibilities. And so when God created mankind, he put man in charge of his creation. He delegated that responsibility. That's part of the divine institution. And we are accountable to God uh, in terms of these specific commands. Now, these are given in Genesis 1.28, But the context is important because this is the sixth day summarizing the sixth day of creation. Genesis 2 expands on what else happened on that sixth day. So God said in verse 26, let us make man in our image. The only creature that God has ever made in his image are human beings. Angels aren't in God's image. Animals aren't in God's image. Nothing else is in God's image except man that sets us apart because he he made us so that we could fulfill these responsibilities of ruling over the the creation that he had made and so man is was given or delegated this dominion responsibility over the creation, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So materially, physically, and immaterially, spiritually, we are different, male and female. But we're both in the image of God. Then God blessed them, and God said to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, having and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there are actually five commands here. Now, they all relate to basically the same thing. Man is to propagate the species. We are to have sexual relations to uh, be fruitful. And then, to multiply uh, and to fill the earth, because God knew that that if He gave the assignment of ruling over all creation to Adam, he couldn't do it. He needed a helper. We'll get to that in a minute, but that wasn't enough because they needed to propagate the species and fill the earth so that they could fulfill that rulership responsibility. So mankind is to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. That means part of their responsibility is to uh, discover things, to discover all of the different natural resources that God uh, put into this planet and to discover how to use them and how to use them responsibly. And so that is all part of man's responsibility as subduing the planet and ruling over it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the the ever-living thing that moves on the earth. Man is not an animal. I was taught that as you were in elementary school. We're just another animal. No, we're not. We are distinct from all the animals. There may be some similarities, but it's not the similarities that's important. It's the differences. Now, how do we know that? Well, just look at men and women. It's it's not the similarities that are important. It's the differences. That's what makes life fun. Okay? So, we are to be fruitful and multiply... Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. Those are five commands. And that's all part of our individual responsible to God. And so we're responsible for the decisions we, uh, we make. So we can't recreate the rules according to our own terms. So in terms of responsible labor, we have Genesis 2-8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now what's interesting here is that there's a distinction between the rest of the planet and this one area that God gives special attention to uh, called the Garden of Eden. And what God is showing Adam is this is what I created to its fullest. Now I want you to go out, and as an image bearer, you are to do likewise with the rest of the planet, develop it. This area is developed. Now you go and do likewise in the rest of the planet. So the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. So this is responsibility. This is more than just being a gardener. Uh, he is to work it and he is to uh, guard it. The word translated keep it is shamar, which has a wide range of meanings, but it does raise the question, what is he guarding it from? So you haven't even heard the base notes yet, but they're coming. Chapter 3 is where we see the serpent. And the hint here is that maybe there's something that's not quite right, but it doesn't come right out and say that. And then God focused them on the one choice issue. God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. That's the focal point of man's choice. You're either going to obey God or not obey God. And there's a consequence. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, that phrase is very specific it's not saying that in 950 years, Adam, when you die physically, that's the penalty. The penalty right now, it happens immediately. You're separated from me. You're spiritually dead. And the consequences of that are, are what we'll see coming later. So we see that God created the woman to be his helper and that because Adam could not do it on his own. So this sin penalty, spiritual death, had other ramifications. it brought corruption into the entire universe. But God, in his wisdom and omniscience, built enough flexibility into his creation to handle the chaos that sin would bring. Sin, if without God having built that flexibility into the uh, into the nature of his creation, uh, could have just exploded, the whole universe. But God get put enough flexibility in there to handle the chaos that sin would bring. But it has an impact on labor. So man was to guard and to keep the garden or to attend and keep the garden. And now labor is going to become difficult. Genesis 3.17, he says to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So he had responsible labor at the beginning. He had responsibilities to take care of the planet, to subdue it, to tend and keep the garden. But now it's going to become toilsome. It's going to be difficult. It's going to fight back. That's where the weeds come from. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. See, there was no difficulty. There were no weeds, there were no problems, there were no toxins, nothing like that. And so when you're, if you had a garden and there were, there was nothing that you had to worry about, no insects that would eat your vegetables, no birds that would eat your tomatoes, uh, then it would be just wonderful. It'd be like the Garden of Eden. But now we have to fight all of that all the time. We constantly see that corruption. God still expects us to labor responsibly. And we see this all the way through Scripture. So what does the Bible teach about labor and laziness? So we'll wrap up with that with just a few verses this this morning. So first of all, labor is now toilsome. It's difficult. God still expects us to labor responsibly. See, a lot of people have the idea that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, that they didn't have anything to do. They just sat around, and they ate fruit, and they just enjoyed one another, and and life was wonderful because they didn't have any responsibilities. But that's not true. Heaven's not going to be that way. There are going to be things that we are going to uh, be responsible for in the perfect heaven. When God gave Israel a constitution, the most perfect law ever set forth because it came from the hand of God, he mandated labor. He knew the problem. Look at this. This is usually referred to as the fourth commandment. This is the commandment related to the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Two commands there. Command one is to remember the Sabbath Number two is to keep it holy, keep it set apart as a distinct day. And then in verse 9, God says six days, and it's another command. Six days you shall labor. That's not a suggestion. He doesn't get to the part of resting until the end of the verse, uh, or the next verse. He says, you shall labor, that's a command, and do all your work. God commands labor. Labor. Uh, then he goes on to say in the next verse, But the seventh day is the Shabbat, the Sabbath, of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You or your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Why? Because that's how God did it. For in six days God made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. I've asked this of some of my Jewish friends. They don't have an answer. I say, see, what that says is that the days have to be the same. You can't squeeze evolution into that. You can't squeeze billions of years into that because it says God... It's made the planet, Genesis the six days in Genesis 1 are literal 24-hour days. If they're not, then you can just go work for, ten, for 7,000 years or for 6,000 years and then rest on the 7,000th year. And that means you never have to do this because you don't live that long. That'd be an easy way out, but you can't do that. Well, they don't have an answer for that because they want to hold to evolution and hold to uh, the Sabbath, but it doesn't work that way. But God commands labor. That's our point. You shall work. You shall labor. Do all your work in six days. Second thing is due to our sin nature, there's a desire to avoid labor, to put it off. Oh, it's too hot today. That's a good excuse in Houston from about Memorial Day to Labor Day. Due to our sin nature, there's a desire to avoid labor, avoid responsibility, and to get something for nothing, to expect others to take care of us, and to expect government to subsidize laziness and irresponsibility. But that's not God's way. A number of important passages I just want to run through briefly on, in Proverbs. Proverbs 14.23 says, "...in all labor there is profit." Isn't that a great statement? In all labor, there is profit. doesn't matter whether you're working uh, with your hands or working with your mind. It doesn't matter if you're out picking up trash on the side of the highway or whether you are a uh, an investor investing money in different projects in order to make more money. Uh, all labor has value. But idle chatter... It's a lot more fun just to sit around and talk and drink coffee. But all idle chatter leads only to poverty. You don't make money, but you have to have, not that money's um, why you do everything, but money pays the bills and buys the food and enables you to enjoy the things of life, but it's not the end result. Proverbs 10, 4, and 5, He who has a slack hand becomes poor. But the hand of the diligent makes prosperous. Now I've translated this a lot of places in, especially in King James, New King James translates the Hebrew word here for rich. But it has the idea of someone who is prosperous, someone who has some money in the bank, somebody who's able to have a, put aside some savings so that when difficulty comes and the car needs to be repaired, you have to buy four new sets of tires because you ran over something, and you have to replace all your tires at the same time or your air conditioner goes out in mid-July. Uh, you've got some money in the bank to repair these things. Uh, that's what it means by prosperous, not what the prosperity uh, theology heretics teach. Proverbs 10.5 goes on to say, He who gathers in summer is a wise son. In other words, you're gathering and you're saving it. You're putting it in the barn for the winter. He who gathers in summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest, because he's lazy and not diligent, is a son who causes shame. Proverbs thirteen twenty two. a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I've heard people say, I just want my money to last as long as I last. Well, what if you live to one of those people that lives to be 105 and your money runs out because you just thought you'd live to be 90? See, God says it's wise for you to lay aside what you make so that your children and your grandchildren benefit from your labor. That's what a good man does. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner, he loses it. And it's stored up for the righteous. There's a warning against being lazy. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. It's a great analogy. Look to the ant you sluggard. I would love this passage. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer. She stores it up in the harvest. And then he says, How long will you sleep, O sluggard? We used to have a lot of fun with that when I was a camp counselor because there were always the people who were night people who just, they just couldn't manage to get up at Reveille at 6.30 in the morning. And we would say, How long will you sleep, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Proverbs 18.9 warns, He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. Being lazy is destructive. You destroy what you have. If you're too lazy and you don't take care of it. If you are lazy and you're married, you have family, you're going to destroy your family because of your laziness. Laziness is a great destroyer. Fifth point here, employers should be generous and gracious with those who labor for them. Now this refers to anybody that you ever pay anybody who, anybody who does anything works for you, whether they are someone who works in, on your landscaping, works on your yard, somebody who comes and cleans your house for you, uh, no matter who they are, uh, someone who works for you in a business, uh, generosity. So in the Mosaic Law it sets a principle, it's not a law that we, uh, w- that, is placed on us today, but it shows a principle that's echoed in the New Testament. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Just because they are from another country doesn't give you the right to be unfair to them. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. So if if you've got somebody who's just a day laborer, you pay them every day so that because they may not be able to go buy food for the day if they're not paid. Sixth point is Christians should not enable the lazy by financially helping them. To do so is unloving. Now that's a hard thing for people to understand. People are in a hardship a lot of times because of the bad decisions and the irresponsibility that they have. So according to this, we're not to enable them. This is what Paul covers in Second Thess three seven through ten, and there he reminds them of the example he and Titus and Timothy set for them. They worked hard. They didn't just uh, depend upon the congregation there. Uh, that was one they were just establishing. He did this in Corinth also. Other places he did, uh, they were, he was supported. But for them he said, we work day and night, and that we might not be a burden to any of you, and we wanted to be an example. You know, this must have been a problem because here and in a couple of other passages, Paul has to lay down this principle for for work and, and labor and not being lazy. So he goes on to say in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall they eat. See, it's not loving to validate somebody's laziness. Now there are people that have great need. And that's what Ephesians 4.28 talks about. On the other hand, those who are unable to help themselves, they're unable to work in any capacity legitimately, they should be aided out of love. There's a difference between those who will not work and those who cannot work. So in Ephesians 4.28, our passage, Paul says, uh, that they are to uh, work with their hands, doing what is good, that he may have something to give, Him who has need. So that is a legitimate response to those who uh, have need, not to the guy who's begging at the at the stoplight down the street because he's just going to use it for drugs or or whatever. You're just you're just supporting a drug habit, a drinking habit, a lazy habit. Number eight. All of these commandments are addressed to individuals, not to governments. It's not the government's responsibility. We do have an example of that in the Mosaic Law that one of the tithes, there were three tithes. Two of them were taken up every year. One was taken up only every third year. And that tithe that was taken up every third year uh, was to support different groups. It would support the Levite because he has no portion or inheritance in the land. And the stranger and the fatherless, the stranger would be the, um, the, the immigrant that has come into the land who's not Jewish. The fatherless would be those who are orphans and the widow is one who doesn't have a man to take care of her. Um, th- this one tithe every third year, that's not a lot, is the minimal safety net for those who legitimately have a need. It's not so they, they, the government is going to pr- have enough there to give them a standard of living that is equal to those who are, who have gotten an education and who work hard. But we've gotten this handout society where we think that, well, the poor, we want them to be able to have cell phones and we want them to be able to have, uh, nice, uh, large, uh, uh televisions, and nice cars, just like people who work for it. All that does is validate irresponsibility and laziness for the most part. There is a place for some aid, but it's minimal. That's the standard that God gave us. Ninth point and last point is that for the individual, our approach is always to be generous and kind to those who are laboring for us, and to those unable to labor for themselves. But it is not kind or loving to enable anyone in their laziness. Second Thessalonians 3.10, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. So I'll be gone on vacation starting in about ten minutes. <laughs> And I look forward to seeing you. I'll get back Monday next, but Jim will be here to continue his studies on Isaiah uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and then next Sunday with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of the importance of our responsibilities, our responsibilities to labor, to save, to take care of our families, to be responsible and to deal with those in our periphery in love and in grace. No harsh words, no angry words or bitter words, uh, not being uh, uh, cheap in terms of remunerating those who labor for us, but being generous and gracious and kind in everything uh, we do and how we conduct all of our lives. And Father, we thank you because we have an example in the way you gave for us in the Lord Jesus Christ that you gave above and beyond, you gave your only begotten Son to die on the cross as our substitute, the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God who gave everything, died in our place, paid the penalty for sin, that we might have everlasting life, and that that is a free gift. We do not earn it, we do not work for it, we don't deserve it. It is a free gift. Christ did all of the work, We simply accept it and trust in Him. Father, we pray you'll make that clear to anyone who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that once we trust Christ as Savior, we become a new creature in Christ, and that is irreversible. We are always saved. We are always in your family, no matter what happens, because every sin is already paid for by Christ on the cross. So, Father, we thank you for your grace and the example you have given us in Christ. We pray that we may remember it and apply it consistently. In Christ's name, amen.